Today's conversation is brought to you by World Vision. Explore the liberating movement of God toward life, justice, and freedom for all people through key women in the Exodus story. World Vision and Danielle Strickland have partnered to bring you this free four-week study. It includes spiritual practices, space for reflection, video content from leaders, pastors, and authors. Download the free resource at worldvision.org forward slash NAE 2024 to unlock bonus content and more. We should be about heartbeats that are heaven bound. And then the whole question becomes, okay, how do you manifest this pro-abundant life perspective in terms of a ministry platform? And how do you do that out into, into the world? But it's all based on John 10, 10, where Christ said, I came that you might have life and then have that life abundantly. And certainly that applies to folks outside the womb, but it also applies to folks inside the womb. And that's why we're a pro-abundant life ministry as opposed to a pro-life ministry. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Today, we discuss an issue that is very divisive in our current context, abortion. Roland Warren leads CareNet, a network of pregnancy centers in North America, and he helps us understand the landscape and what pro-life ministry looks like in a post-Roe world. Roland, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk with you about um, a really important topic. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Walter, and uh, certainly it's uh, just a blessing to be really connected with the uh, NAE and uh, have an opportunity to chat about uh, an issue that's really very important. <laughs> so yeah. it's a good time and it's good timing for for this conversation. Yes. Uh, you know, often in uh, conversations like this, there's the work that we do, but there's also a personal story behind it. Yeah. Um, after 20 years in the corporate world, you made a transition into a different type of work. Um, what drew you to engage in pro-life ministry and work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I My story really it goes back uh, to um, college, honestly. I When I was a 20-year-old uh, college student, uh, I got my uh, 19-year-old girlfriend uh, pregnant. We were both undergrads at Princeton. And um, and it was unexpected. We were both Christians. And obviously, we knew what we were supposed to be doing, but we weren't doing it. And so, mm -hmm. we got some of the consequences of that. And when she went to student health services at Princeton to get the pregnancy test, um, you know, nurse comes out, administers the test, comes back, says it's positive, And without taking an extra gulp of air, says, now, of course, you're going to have an abortion. And my girlfriend, who's kind of the kind of punchline of the story, has been my wife of 40 plus years, you know, says, well, I don't want to have an abortion. I want to get married. And the nurse is like, well, how are you going to graduate from Princeton with a baby? And then she asks, well, what do you want to do when you graduate? And, and my wife says, well, I want to I want to become a doctor. And she's my like, gosh, how are you going to become a doctor with a baby? Graduate from Princeton with a baby doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. Seems like abortion is the better option for you. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of t tell the story that, you know, she comes back to the dorm. We're sitting on the edge of the bed, which is where we should spend all of our time. And, uh, <laughs> and she tells me this story. And, you know, I essentially say, you know, we're going to keep and move forward with the plan. Um, and uh, you know, I'm going to be a husband to you and a father to our child growing inside of you. And that's what we did. So we got married uh, and uh, had our son, Jamin, uh, on Princeton's campus. Uh, she did graduate from Princeton. Uh, she went on to be a doctor, been practicing over 30 years. And so we saw God's faithfulness and all of that. So often, quote, the pro-life movement or any of that kind of stuff at that that time. But, you know, it was one of those decisions that really of how I think about the issue uh, and how I think about um 
responding to the issue of abortion because uh you know in that moment i understand the temptation you know it it was embarrassing for us uh our our parents didn't want us to get married in fact they you know essentially cut us off financially after we got married so we you know we're pretty much we're on our own and so i understand that you know just the temptation is to do that especially for christians Mm -hmm. um but also seeing how god blesses on the other side of 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 being faithful, not letting one mistake complicate into two mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thankful for that, but I also have a sensitivity for folks who made a different decision in that regard. Wow. That, that's a really compelling story and obviously deeply informs the nature of your work at CareNet. So so tell us about CareNet. What, what is CareNet? Yeah, CareNet's a, you know, a ministry that's really focused on offering compassion, hope, help to uh, women and men at risk for abortion. Uh, it was started in 1975 by uh, Harold O.J. Brown, uh, who was a theologian. Some folks listening may have heard of him. And then also Francis Schaefer and C. Everett Coop. And Billy Graham was involved as well. And, and it was really started as the Christian Action Council, uh, initially because uh, on the life issue, you know, Catholics were pretty much kind of carrying the water on the issue for the most part. And many uh, evangelical and Protestant denominations were either silent or pro-choice. And mm-hmm. so uh, some Catholic folks came to Harold O.J. Brown and said, hey, you know, you guys need to get into the game. And so what what happened was they formed an organization called the Christian Action Council. Uh, and the objective of Christian Action Council really was to be more on the advocacy side of the issue. So, you know, the National Right to Life tends to be, was started, tends to have more of a Catholic focus now, at least it used to in terms of kind of how it was started, if you will. And this was really kind of engaging uh, Protestants on the issue. After some years, um, Protestants or evangelicals rather were started to form pregnancy centers across the country and um, started coming to Christian Action Council and saying, we need cover, we need support, we need, you know, training, all these different things. And they started a project called the Care Network. And uh, that started to grow. And then after a number of years, uh, the board decided, you know, we're going to move out of sort of the advocacy part of the pro-life movement and move into the care part and really support this a growing network of pregnancy centers across the country. So now CareNet has about 1,250 uh, affiliated pregnancy centers in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, the objective is to meet people at their point of need and offer them that compassion, hope, and help uh, that's really needed for someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. Mm. The The language that um, you use at CareNet is um, interesting. You, you talk about a pro-abundant life, not simply a pro-life ministry. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's it, it's interesting. It's not like marketing spin or just trying to be different, but it actually comes from John 10, 10, where Christ said, I came that you might have life and then have that life abundantly. Hmm. And, you know, when I started at CareNet, God downloaded that that verse into my brain and I just began to kind of meditate on it and look, look it up in the Greek and really trying to understand what Christ was saying in that moment. And there's a number of things that he's saying there, because that really is Jesus's why statement. Like, this is why he came, so that we might have this life and have this life abundantly. And when you look at that verse, you know, he's really talking about two types of life. He's talking about physical life, if you will, where the Greek word is the bios, B-I-O-S, like physical life. But he also is kind of referring to a spiritual life, Zoe, a unique type of spiritual life that only comes from a relationship with God. So essentially what he's saying is, look, I came to link your bios to my Zoe, that you might have abundant life. And so when I started to think about that in the context of the life issue, I said, my goodness, Jesus wasn't pro-life. He was pro-abundant life Hmm. because he said so. Because, see, you can be an atheist and be pro-life because that means that you're solving for the life, like the heartbeat, for saving a baby. Again, God honoring should be doing that. 
But as Christians, we should be solving for heartbeats that are heaven bound. Mm. That's the distinction. Heartbeats that are heaven bound. In other words, linking bias to Zoe. And so how I kind of took that in and how we started to kind of institutionalize that in terms of our framework was that that's what we really should be about. We should be about heartbeats that are heaven bound. And then the whole question becomes, okay, how do you manifest this pro-abundant life perspective in terms of a ministry platform? And how do you do that out into the world? But it's all based on John 10, 10, where Christ said, I came that you might have life and then have that life abundantly. And certainly that applies to folks outside the womb, but it also applies to folks inside the womb. And that's why we're a pro-abundant life ministry as opposed to a pro-life ministry. There are a lot of implications to that shift. And clearly you're describing something that's not just a rebranding or marketing ploy, um, not even something that's just a response to cultural uh, the climate that we're in, that where we're choices you know, make such a, a, a big difference um, for the political implications. You're, you're saying there's a theological implication to the language that you're promoting. And, and that's, that's huge. Um, but we haven't always lived up to that either as individuals yeah. to the call of Christ or as organizations and movements. So as evangelicals, we're deeply committed to this notion that God created everyone in his image. Every life is valuable to God from conception to death. Um, but the pro-life movement has sometimes been criticized um, for such a, a narrow focus on abortion that it doesn't sufficiently pay attention to complicated health experiences of mother and children or lack of financial support, emotional, practical that play into the decisions. What within that is a legitimate critique and and how can we improve and learn from those critiques? Well, I think, you know, a lot of things in because of the way that they began. Hmm. And, and I think that part of what sort of what happened on the life issue is that what, what you've got to understand with the life issue is that there's actually two sanctities that are reflected in the life issue. It's not just the sanctity of life, but there's also a, the sanctity of marriage and family consistent with God's design. Mm. And so to hold up this pro-abundant life perspective, one of the things that God did was he took me to the most celebrated unbland pregnancy in the human existence, which was the birth of Christ. From a human perspective, his birth was unplanned. Mary's pregnancy was unplanned, right? And Mary had hopes and dreams and aspirations for her life that did not include a child at that time and in that way. And so she's faced with the uncertainty of this unplanned pregnancy. And what does she do? Well, she doesn't focus on the uncertainty of what she doesn't know. She focuses on the certainty of what she does know. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that there's a life growing inside of her. And it's not a life worth sacrificing, but a life worth sacrificing for. Now, in terms of like what a lot of people do is say, got it, Rowan. Okay, that story's in the first chapter, the first book of the New Testament. I got it. We're supposed to be saving the proverbial Jesuses and helping the proverbial Marys. Hmm. But yeah, you got to keep reading. What did God do to make sure that Mary's unplanned pregnancy wasn't a crisis pregnancy? He sent an angel to Joseph. And Joseph faced a similar dilemma as any abortion-minded man, anybody who's faced with that decision, hopes for his life, dreams for his life. that did not include a child at this time and in this way. And he's got a plan. He's going to put her away quietly, which in that culture was how you did abortions because you couldn't put the baby away. You put the woman and the baby away. The angel comes to him and says, no, no, no. (laughs) I've got a plan for you, man. It's different than one that you have. I want you to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. So what you see is, is that the holy family was holy family, a father and mother united in marriage, loving each other and loving their child and loving God. And so that's actually the first pillar here because- 
if you get focused on just saving babies and helping women, then what you don't get is that sanctity of family consistent with God's design. Because Jesus could have come into the world. I mean, you know, scripture could have been written so that Jesus came into the world via a single mother, would have accomplished his purpose to bring a savior into the world, but it would have violated this principle, this design. So a lot of these downstream things that we are talking about, like support and all these other issues, this missing support, a key driver of that missing support is the guy who got her pregnant. Mm-hmm. And what we've done in the life issue is we've got this whole narrative and strategy about helping the, the 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 woman and saving the baby. But what we lost in on the way to this, right, was this whole notion of reaching the guy, sending an angel, so to speak, like God did to go after the guy intentionally to build a strong family. Because when you build a strong family, all these downstream issues that become complications are less so. And that's the reason why 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. So you're not actually going to solve the abortion issue. You're not going to solve the abortion issue if you don't build strong families. And so my critique, the first one is, in terms of getting to your your perspective, is you've got to look at this through the the context of, of what happened with the birth of Christ, that we should be building strong families, which means we have to be just as aggressive in seeking out men and calling them called in mission in the same way that God called in mission Joseph to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her, in the same way that God called in mission Joseph when Mary was at risk and Jesus was at risk because Herod wanted to kill him, mm-hmm. called Joseph to provide and to protect one man, two missions, husband to her, father to the child growing inside of her, one man, two missions to, to provide and to protect. And here's the thing, when that happens, guess what you get? Bias. The woman is much more likely to give the child life. So I think a key part of like how we respond to these things is we have to have this holistic and like pro-abundant life perspective that's focused on God's design for family in terms of how we're responding to the issue. And I think in a lot of ways, we have not been doing that. We've been focusing on a narrative that really, frankly, has been framed by the other side, which is about this issue about women and, and, and question marks, which we say babies, but it's actually about women, it's about men, but uh, and it's about babies as well. It's about all of that. And we should be building strong families consistent with the model that you see in the first chapter, the first book of the New Testament. What a powerful way of reading the story of the birth of Jesus and putting it within this larger uh, drama, not only theologically, uh, but just now intimately with the family structure and the hopes and aspirations, the disappointments, the fears that you've described and uh, a response that God had for the structure of the family. Well, um, I can tell you that just personally, that's what happened for me. Hmm. I mean, you know, my my girlfriend, my wife, she was facing, she she had the same dynamic, even though the way she got pregnant was different from Mary. The the practical reality of the pregnancy was exactly the same. Hmm. She had all the same questions. How am I going to tell my father? What's my community going to say? How am I going to take care of this child? What about all my dreams? Same stuff that Mary was pondering in her head, Right. But God sits an angel to me in the same way. They say, no, no, you need to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. So we want these women to tap into their inner Mary, if you were their, their inner Mary and ascribe to themselves the virtue and the character of Mary. But what you see in the biblical narrative is the same thing for men to ascribe to themselves the virtue and the character of Joseph. And when you don't have that perspective, you end up with the dilemma. You end up with the dilemma that you started with. Mm-hmm. Then we end up building single mother communities. Mm. not married family communities. And then we end up critiquing and criticizing the single mother communities when in, when the reality is we don't have a, we haven't been arguing or launching a perspective that does anything else. So that's why the difference between pro-life and pro-abundant life 
If she's got five kids with five different, it's check, 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 check. Now, from a pro-life perspective, both that's a win. But from a pro-abundant life perspective, it's not. Because the notion here is that she's supposed to be transformed, right, in that context. And the transforming institutions that God has designed are the family. That's the role of the family, to be transformed. So Jesus, his call was not to come as you are and stay as you came, but to but to become as you are, but don't stay as you came, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the institution of marriage and family that God designed is an institution to transform in those types of situations. And we delink that from the sanctity of life. So again, it's the sanctity of marriage and family and the sanctity of life. You link those two things together. You're less likely to have abortions. You're less likely to have women having multiple children out of wedlock, and then all the other things that come as a result of that. That's an, Roland, that's an expanded vision of what we even would mean by a crisis pregnancy center, which locates the main concern on the pregnancy, on the crisis of, of that moment, which often is a mother, you know, child dynamic that is centered. But uh, you're describing something much larger uh, in scope and ambition, uh, and I would imagine difficulty. So how does CareNet advocate and build out strong families, the sanctity of marriage and family life, uh, that that's a, it seems to me a tall task. Well, it is, it is, but you, you know, it, most of it has to do with just changing what you're talking about. I mean, for years and years and years, right? So a woman facing a pregnancy uh, a decision that would, that would contact a CareNet center, a CareNet affiliated pregnancy center, right? And, and the goal was to bring her in. Um, and, and to and and to kind of reach her and and that that was how you kind of thought about things and so this really started to change probably about 10, 12 years ago candidly where, where there started to be more of a focus on well wait a minute we need to be engaging the men because one of the other key things and the reason why you need to do this if you're pro life if you will is because the father of the child is the most influential in her decision to abort we did a national survey with Lifeway where we surveyed women who had had abortions and we asked them. Who did you talk to about your pregnancy decision? Give them a long list. Their mother, best friend, Planned Parenthood, medical profession, all of it. Number one was the fa- the guy who got her pregnant. Mm-hmm. Father of the baby. Number one. Wasn't even close. Then we asked, who was the most influential in your decision to abort? Guess who it was? Father of the baby. Mm-hmm. We followed up that survey a couple years later with Lifeway again, where we, we surveyed men who had participated in an abortion. And we asked them the same question. Who did she talk to about the abortion decision? I was number one. That's same list, number one, wasn't even close. And then we asked who was the most influential in her decision to abort. And guess who he said? I was. So mm-hmm. the woman who has the abortion is saying the father of the baby is the most influential. The guy who's participating is saying I'm the most influential. And for 40 plus years, we built a movement largely that totally neglects that narrative. Mm-hmm. In other words, that totally neglects the narrative that's in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, right? So for me, it, it's not like this is like, something like extra. I mean, God has given us a framework in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament of what, when someone is facing an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective, you build a family. Is that harder? Absolutely. Hmm. But it's essential to transform. See, because kids who come through those single mother structures are, guess what, more likely to become single mothers and, and fathers who produce them. So you end up replicating the very thing that you're trying to eradicate when you when you do it outside of the design. So that's why the sanctity of marriage and family and the sanctity of life. So the first thing you do is you, you first off, rhetorically, you have to start speaking that truth. 
and linking those two things together. So I never talk about the sanctity of life issue without talking about the sanctity of marriage and family issue. And frankly, I talk about the sanctity of marriage and family first before sanctity of life. Why? Because that's what God did. The first thing that Joseph was told was what? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In other words, the first thing the angel did was affirm the sanctity of marriage and family before he even told him who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Is that what we do? So you have to link those two link those two things together in terms of that. And so you start doing that. And then the second thing, which was start building programming into pregnancy centers so that you're engaging the guy. When I first started at Karenette 10 years ago, roughly about 6% of pregnancy centers had anything for men, a brochure, anything. So what happens often was, you know, you got a pregnancy center and a Planned Parenthood and, and the guy's sitting out in the car in the, in the parking lot of the Planned Parenthood and he's sitting out in the car in the parking lot of the pregnancy center. Now for the Planned Parenthood folks, that's great because they don't want him in there because mm-hmm. they've been building a whole narrative of her body, her choice, right? Autonomy and enmity framework. We're trying to build unity and community, which is what is reflected in, in the birth process and in the marriage process. We need him in the pregnancy center. Mm-hmm. Now about Close to 70% of CareNet affiliated pregnancy centers have some form of ministry for men engaging them, including people on staff, men typically on staff who are building a ministry platform. So when she comes in, the call on the phone is like, no, no, we'd like him to come too. And not only just to come and sit in the waiting room, but to come and be a part of this process so that we can help him learn how to be a good father in that process. Because the other link is that so many of these men who are facing pregnancy decisions have grown up in father absent homes. So they've never had modeled for them what it means to be an involved, responsible, committed, and married father. Hmm. Well, that's why God's sending them to us, the people of the book who understand that narrative. And so if they come to us and all we're doing is focusing on the sanctity of life issue and not having the conversation about the sanctity of marriage and family issue, they're not seeing that in the community. They're supposed to be seeing it from the folks who are the people of the book who understand that that narrative. Yeah. Uh, how does this work? Um, walk me through that process. Uh, it's got to be more than just here's a brochure, you know, inviting them uh, men to sit into the room and here's a brochure. Here's go read this book because you're saying that it's an unwinding and then a re. Uh, reforming of maybe a lifetime of how manhood, how being a husband has been perceived. Um, so this seems to be a discipleship issue. Um, <laughs> absolutely. It, it, absolutely. Because, you know, like, again, you have to have, you have to get him started on that process. For example, we developed a resource called Dr. Dad, which is designed to teach infants and toddlers skills around health and safety and all those kinds of things so that he can be a support for mom. Because if you want father involvement, there are two things. You need to have skills, right? It's participation, which means skills, and then locations, which means presence. Those two things. So you ha- when you have the skill set that you need to be a good father, guess what? The abortion decision becomes less of an issue because now you start to birth the child in your mind. Hmm. That That's what happens with every father, whether you're married or not. You start to birth the child in your mind because nothing in your body changes when she gets pregnant. 
So when you start acting like a father, so that's what we do. They come in and they learn together how to care for an infant and toddler, how to change a diaper, how to how to take a temperature, all these very practical skills that that a lot of women learn through different processes that men never do. So we start that piece. And the other key piece is just helping them understand how important they are to the well-being of the child. Most guys, if you look at the narrative on TV or the media or whatever, guys are dumb, dads are dumb, dangerous, or disaffected. Well, if that's what you grew up with, and if that's the narrative in the media, well, then you're going to think that I don't really matter here. And so what we want to do is help him understand that he matters. So, so part of this process is getting men from the church to come and be part of the staff of pregnancy centers, volunteering at pregnancy centers, so that these men have other men that they can connect to. And there's so many fathers out there that have been fathers for years and years and years, right? That could walk alongside a young man who's facing a pregnancy decision to help him understand that he has inside of him with a skill set that can be developed what is needed and what his children need and what she needs. And so when she says, look, he's going to be supporting me. And particularly if he, if he says he's going to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her, all of a sudden the abortion issue gets pushed off the table. And I, and I do want, and I do want to kind of link to, you know, your, your comment about discipleship, because that's exactly what it is. The, the second pillar, right, of a pro-abundant life perspective versus God's design for family. The second pillar is God's call to discipleship. Hmm. If you talk to a lot of people and, and you ask Christian people and pro-life people, you say, All right, you know, you're pro-life, okay, prove it to me. So many of them will tell you, well, they'll tell you who they voted for. And don't get me wrong, there's a political process, there's a need for political engagement and a need for material support for someone facing a pregnancy decision. But this issue is neither not neither primarily material or political, it's primarily discipleship. Why? Because if helping someone who's facing a pregnancy decision is a good work, then all good works should lead to discipleship. Water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, homes for the homeless, right? Well, most people understand those things instinctively as Christians. Well, those are things that lead to discipleship. So they they look at the issue. Okay, okay, food security. I see that as through the lens of discipleship, hmm. right? So I'm going to support, you know, compassion or world vision or world relief or one of those organizations versus, you know, maybe UNICEF or some other groups. Again, they're doing bias stuff, like it's physical work stuff, but they're not doing that Zoe stuff, which Christians are called to do. But the light issue, because of how it's been politicized, most Christians put it outside and then it becomes sort of like, wait, it's this issue outside the church. No, no, it's inside the church because it's water for the thirst, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, all that stuff, but compassion for the pregnant. And so you should see someone who's facing a pregnancy decision and your first thought shouldn't be, who do I need to vote for so she can't have an abortion or what kind of material support she needs? Your first thought should be, she needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Is she a disciple of Jesus Christ? The child growing inside of her needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The guy who got her pregnant needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And when you think about it that way, then you see this issue through a pro-abundant life perspective, which means I need to make sure that she has Zoe <laughs> as well as Bias. Mm. And then that transcends all the political. And then, then the church leads on this issue with the political narrative as part of that. And and I'll, I'll give you this framework because sometimes when I say these things, people say, well, oh my gosh, you're saying we should disengage politically. No, no. So I'm saying, I'm saying we should do exactly what Christ modeled when he was handed a coin. Hmm. He was handed a coin and he was asked, should we pay taxes? And he says, well, who's face on it? And the whole, and people know the story, right? He says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God. Well, what did Caesar care about? Political power and material wealth. 
the political and the material. And what did Christ say? There's a higher thing. Well, what is the higher thing? It's discipleship. It's the great commandment and the great commission. Those things are the higher things. Now, when you focus on that higher thing, you don't lose the lower thing. Why? Because if you're a disciple maker, you have to care about the material needs of folks. Because 1 John 3, 17 says, if your brother and sisters are needy and you have no pity, then the love of God is not in you. In other words, you're not a disciple maker. So you can engage with material support, which is social services, and not do discipleship, but you can't do discipleship without doing this piece. Same thing on the political side. Why? Because people of the book were called to hold the government to be just and merciful, especially to the vulnerable. That's what the people that were called to do that. Now, you can be involved in politics without doing discipleship, but you can't be a disciple, uh, disciple maker without being involved in the political realm because we have that call. So what this does is it frames the life issue in the context of the great commandment and the great commission, which frames our material support and our political engagement. And that's the narrative as I've been doing this work that I just, I, I feel like that's what's needed in this. In, it's always been needed, but certainly we lost that as the politics began to lead on, on this issue, as opposed to the church, the great commandment, the great commission should be leading on, on this issue and, and it totally changes everything. So Roland, you, you have put the accent on the theology just in the course of our conversation. That's been obvious that the theology and then the accent on the discipleship. And now you, you have introduced that there is in fact a political uh, element to it. Um, in our quite contentious political moment with the overturning of Roe v. Wade in ways that the political discourse has unfolded state by state uh, within election cycles. Um, what are some of the challenges that you are facing? Well, I, you know, I think the challenge is always the same one. I mean, our call really is to really mobilize Christians. See, I see that's the answer. And even if you have a political perspective in terms of how you're framing this issue, the reality is that if you lose the pews, you lose the polls. Hmm. Take the Ohio decision that ha happened recently where, you know, there was a, a ballot initiative to abortion in the Constitution. If you look at the exit interviews, what you find is what I think it was nearly 60% of Catholics voted to, to codify abortion. I think it was like 45%, something like that of, of Protestants, you know, I think uh, of mainline Protestants, it was like 60%. In other words, a large percentage of Christians voted to codify abortion in Ohio's constitution. The margin of difference in all these ballot initiatives is pro-choice Christians. It's Christians who look at the life issue not through that through the lens that they should be. They're looking at it through a, a pro-choice perspective. And so our challenge, I think, and I'm smiling, all of ours is to really help Christians rightly see this issue through the proper lens. And the lens that, from my perspective, um, that really the Lord showed me was really seeing it through the lens of the great commandment and the great commission. Hmm. See, when I talk to folks about, people talk to me and say, well, I'm pro-choice and whatever, I'm a Christian, I'm pro-choice. I don't start with when life began or any of that stuff. I start with the great commandment. Hmm. I say, so what you've got to help me understand is how is aborting a child a fulfillment of the great commandment? Because when you look at that passage, particularly in Luke, where a lawyer comes to him, which is very appropriate given this issue. And he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, well, what's the book say? Love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, right? Your heart and your mind, your soul and strength, right? All that. You understand that, right? So like you're supposed to love God this way, right? And then love your neighbors yourself. 
Okay, so you're supposed to have this sacrificial love for your neighbor. If you look it up in the Greek, the Greek word for love there is agapeo, and the, and the Greek word for neighbor means near one or near fellow. The child growing inside of the, of the mother is her nearest near one. Because we talk about nearness in terms of proximity, I'm next to you, and also in terms of relationship, I'm your next of kin. Hmm. The child in the womb is her next of kin next to her in the most intimate way. And she's called to sacrificially love that child. And in fact, the word for love that's used there is the same word for love that's used in John 3.16 and even how we're supposed to love our enemies. Hmm. So explain to me how supporting abortion is a sacrificial act of love for God, for your neighbor. How would that reconcile that for me? And what and you can't. See, when you start to talk to Christians in that context, wait a minute, whether you're whether you call yourself a liberal or a conservative Christian or whatever, I don't like to put an adjective in front of Christians, but if you do, you don't get a pass on the great commandment. Because hmm. Christ said, What all the commandments rest on those two commands to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's two commandments and three loves: love God, love neighbor, love self. And then the great commission is linked to the great commandment. Because we're called to make disciples of who? Our neighbors. Now, who's your first neighborhood as a parent? Your children. Hmm. So aborting your children is a violation of the Great Commission. Hmm. Because how can it be that you're making a disciple of someone that you're killing? It's inconsistent. So when you start to think about it that way, now that framework in the pews, right? And that framework with pastors now communicated to the pews. Well, guess what that affects? The polls. See, I, I love what, what Father uh, um, or Richard Newhouse uh, said once. He, he was talking about, you know, the whole pol political engagement. And he said, you know, people think that, you know, that, that talk a lot about how, you know, politics is downstream from culture. But what they forget is that culture is downstream from religion. Hmm. Right? Because what's the word out there? That, that, that our constitutional system, our, 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 our constitution and all of our system, it depends on a religious and moral people. Right? I think it was John Adams that said that, right? So what is he saying? What is he saying? Well, that means that the politics, yes, is downstream from it's downstream from religion. So if you don't have a moral people, then you're not going to get moral voting. Mm -hmm. And so if you allow an issue to be framed in a political context, then you lost your ability to communicate to people how this is a moral issue and then drive them, help them see it in the context of the great commandment and the great commission, which are the two bookends of the Christian faith. Those two bookends, the great commandment. So we're supposed to live out the great commandment so we can fulfill the great commission in every area of our life, whether it's food security, water, housing, everything that we do as Christians, we should be looking at, is this fulfilling, right? the great commandment. It's this living out of the great commandment and is it fulfilling the great commission? So whether it's the life issue, any issue, we should be looking at it through that lens and because that's what scripture says and that's what Jesus modeled in his life. He lived out the great commandment and then fulfilled the great commission in that same way. We have that same call as Christians. And I think that the life issue in particular needs to be viewed in that way. It's a discipleship issue. Again, coming back to this of strengthening what our local churches, our campus ministries are doing in terms of teaching, but discipling an expansive vision of what life would mean uh, from scripture and the the call to sacrifice in terms of the great command and the great commission. Um, I want to touch on um, the political expression that you've uh, already alluded to. Uh, with respect to abortion, I get that with the sanctity of life issue. But 
what does engagement look like on the sanctity of marriage and family issue? So in other words, if you've already expanded our view of the theological framework and the discipleship mandate of yeah. pro-abundant life issue, expand our understanding of what a political application of that would be beyond just laws about abortion. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it really be- comes down to like, you know, being the hands and feet of Jesus in all these different areas. So wh- what I say folks all the time is that, look, we have to have ministry on ramps in the church to help people facing pregnancy decisions. And those ministry on ramps are modeling these perspectives. So example, so we have a ministry we developed in partnership with Dr. Tony Evans called Making Life Disciples. And the goal of Making Life Disciples is to get small groups and churches trained so they can come alongside someone who's facing a pregnancy decision inside or outside the church. Most churches have no ministry on ramp for that. You got a weight issue, we got a ministry for that. You know, if you got a grief issue, we got something for that. I mean, all these other issues, but for the issue that's the most time sensitive, like from the time a woman finds out she's pregnant and often she schedules or even has an abortion, especially with, with the abortion pill, it's like less than nine days. For this most critical life, and death, there's no ministry on-ramp. And so what we need to have in the churches is a ministry on-ramp so that you can offer compassion, hope, help, and discipleship for folks that are outside the church, which might be coming from a pregnancy center, but someone who's sitting in a pew. Sunday morning, took a pregnancy test, and it's positive, and it's not good news, and you don't have a ministry on-ramp to reach that person. So this these small groups that we have in churches, many churches have small groups, and too often our small groups are about us loving us. Mm. What if your small group became about us loving them, and you were trained so that someone who's facing a pregnancy decision has a group of disciples that's going to be walking alongside them, offering the compassion, hope, and the practical support that they need? Life decisions need life support, right? And the life support they need is sitting in the church. So how does that reinforce marriage and family, all those things? Reason they want to have an abortion because they, they, they've been living together for a while. They don't even know what a godly marriage looks like. You've been married for 30 years. Will you mentor this young couple? Mm. He's running from fatherhood because he never had one. He's been a father for years. He had some ups, had some downs maybe. Will you mentor this young man? Mm. She wants to have an abortion because she can't get to her prenatal visits. Okay, well, you're retired. Will you driver? Will you watch your kids? I mean, all these different things, these are all ministry opportunities that are in the church that need to be applied to this very specific situation. So marriage and family, it's modeled It's modeled that way. And, and I can tell you just from my own life, I grew up you know, in a single mother home. My mother got pregnant the first time when she was 17 years old, had me when she was 19. By the time she was in her early 20s, she had four kids under the age of eight, and my dad was gone. Hmm. So I get my girlfriend pregnant. The whole narrative of the life that I saw, many of my aunts and other women that I knew, they're all single mothers. Why was marriage in the cards? Well, marriage was in the card for me because I went to church and I saw Pastor Cole married to Sister Cole. Mm. And I saw other men being husbands and fathers. And so what that did was it imprinted on this little black boy's mind a link between this, a link between fatherhood, motherhood, sex, and marriage. Even though I didn't live that out in terms of what I was doing, that narrative was in my brain. Now, imagine if I just grew up all the time in the community where I saw where I saw more baby showers than wedding showers. I'm more likely to replicate. This is why it's so important for people in the church to be linking the sanctity of marriage and family and the sanctity of life because that's where you model for folk 
the vision, God's design for these things that actually breaks the cycle. So what happens? We get married, got two sons, they're both married. One generation broke that entire cycle that's in that's in my family. Why? Because I was in church and people were modeling God's design for family for me. And that imprinted on me and I so I could see that. So when I made that decision, I made that mistake that was still in my head, linking those things together. So the thought of being a baby daddy never even crossed my mind. Because I didn't see those because I saw men in church being husbands and fathers, tapping into their inner Joseph. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And so that's why it's so critical that this issue's in the church and that we're modeling uh, the way out of this in the church. That's not going to happen through a political narrative. That's going to happen in, in the church, in the pews. And that's why that's why it's central that the churches and pastors lead on this issue versus follow. This is yet another example of how God works in a person's life and redeems elements, uh, even of the very difficult moments uh, to use for his glory and his purposes. Um, As we draw this conversation to a close, do you have a word of encouragement, uh, of hope that you could offer to our listeners? I I do. I do. You know, again, I mean, I'm in this work full time and, you know, people certainly are seeing what's happening in the political narrative and these referendums and we're losing, you see all these different things. And I always tell folks the same thing I told them early on when people say, well, Rowland, when is Roe v. Wade going to be overturned? Is it going to be overturned? And I always tell them Roe v. Wade is overturned every single day. I would tell them that. I said, why? Because every single day there's a woman who can make a decision to bring her child into the world. Even though it's perfectly legal, it's unthinkable for her. My wife overturned Roe v. Wade. Hmm. So many women, like, see, that's the power that we only view it through a political narrative. Then you only win if you get a judge, you get a politician, whatever. But we have a power that's beyond that because we have the ability to sit knee to knee with someone and live out the great commandment and the great commission. And they can't stop us from doing that. So it it could be perfectly legal, but unthinkable because of the love of the love of Christ. And that's what you see with Christ. There were lots of things that were perfectly legal in his day for Jesus' followers, but they rejected those things. Why? Because of the great commandment and the great commission. But that's only going to happen if we kind of see the issue that way and start doing that, loving people with the love of Christ who are facing pregnancy decisions, including them within our community of faith, helping them see God's design for family, helping them see God's call to discipleship. And that only happens in the church. That only is going to happen if the church of God is leading on this issue and framing it properly as a moral issue. That needs a that needs some political engagement and material support, but it's primarily a moral issue, a discipleship issue, and that's what keeps me encouraged. Regardless of what happens on the ballot initiatives, all the other things, I say, look, I, we can we can turn a Starbucks into a pregnancy center because we can have a life transforming conversation with someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. And I see that every single day in the work that I do. So let us not grow weary of doing the good work that God's called us to. So good. Our guest on today's conversation has been Roland Warren. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Roland. You're welcome. Great to be with you. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org dot org.